Happy Thanksgiving from Inappropriate Conversations. I'm Greg. About a year ago, I did a beginning of a talkback series, timed specifically for the holiday season, and here I am again, beginning a talkback series. Talkbacks are uh, repeats in their entirety, warts and all, of past inappropriate conversations. And last year, it was done in a block. It sort of took over the show for a few months in terms of playing all the different past episodes that were related to the Christmas holiday season, for example. And then carving up the longest ever inappropriate conversation, three and a half hours as originally recorded, into more bite-sized, a six-pack of bite-sized shows in the month of January. This year is going to be slightly different in that TalkBack is back as a permanent part of the rotation. It won't be taking over for a period of time where there'll be no new content. I'll be mixing it in with TalkBacks, the regular Inappropriate Conversations podcast, along with Walk the Earth, on an ongoing rotating basis. Now, obviously it would be impossible for this to be a forever thing. At some point, the old episodes will loop into the current time frame. But I feel like there's a year or two, maybe more than a year or two, of this coming our way. With the show being introduced to Spotify, I have picked a point in time in the past, in the middle of calendar year 2017, as the beginning of the feeds for iTunes, Spotify, etc. I've got my reasons. And to cover old shows which I think merit um, reconsideration, and certainly might find a new audience in reintroducing them, I'm going to do this talkback concept. Now, my original plan, and it still is in the plans, was to start off the talkbacks with the most downloaded episodes in the history of inappropriate conversations. And that is still to come, probably the next episode's to come, meaning there'll be two or three talkbacks in a row before I get back to the next Walk the Earth and new material for inappropriate conversations, all of which are planned, all of which are in the works. But instead of starting off with that, you know, the most downloaded show, which obviously is going to be a really old one, going back to the first year, this one also is going back to the first year, and I'm doing it specifically to time with Thanksgiving Day. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday, always has been. It's been a way for family and friends to get together. It's uh, very simple. It hasn't been overly commercialized. It really tends to be about family, friends, food, and football, and I like all those things. When I recorded Inappropriate Conversations 38, probably starting the recording process in November of 2010, finishing the edit and posting it in early December of 2010, I didn't realize I was about to be on a 10-year hiatus from what has been a family uh, tradition for as long as I can remember. There are very few years in my life prior to my brother and I playing paper football, and for 31 of the recent years of my life, we played paper football in such a way that we kept meticulous track of the scores. This episode is looking at what we call, in my family, the Thanksgiving paper football classic. Many reasons why it comes to mind. One of them is that it's Thanksgiving Day as I'm recording this intro. Another one is that, you know, I, I still love the game, love college football, pro football, and, and we play paper football in such a way that tries to emulate and respect the sports that we enjoy. But the other reason is a recent interaction with the Solid Verbal podcast. I sent them a note, in other words, just this week, because on the Twos Cruise, which they released this week on Monday, the uh, the typical Tuesday edition of their show, they had sort of a casual, hap-handed kind of request for feedback. It was, um, when your family gets together for the Thanksgiving Day event, how often do the brothers, fathers, uncles, maybe even you know, the women in the family too, break out into some sort of a backyard football game? 
I don't have a lot of stories of backyard football games. There were never really enough of us to pair off even into three-on-three to have a meaningful sort of a of a backyard touch two below kind of a football game. But my brother and I did have this tradition of always playing paper football. So I kind of sent them a note and uh, it doesn't apply directly to the request that they had, but I thought it applied well enough. You see, when inappropriate conversations started years ago, it was not long into my listening to shows like Men and Blazers and The Solid Verbal. And in my mind, the soccer theme for uh, podcast was definitely on the um, Grantland network and in my mind, Solid Verbal was too. That may not be true. They may have just been Grant Land adjacent. But I started listening to them more or less at the same time and have followed them, you know, all along. And I will say that the Solid Verbal as a podcast has hit really a new high, not just in this football season, but in the preseason leading up to it. Can't speak for the reasons why necessarily, why the, uh, the content choices have been made the way they were. But I will say that the uh, not just the preseason shows, not just the conference preview kind of shows, but the non-football content building up to that in the spring and early summer were really outstanding. And I think perhaps recognizing the opportunity, they this year kind of diversified what they were doing, took it out of what I would describe as the agate page. Now, the agate page, if those of you can remember uh, consuming your sports, not through smartphone, but through newspapers back in the day, was typically the second page of the sports section. Page one would have, you know, your big story of the day, your big event, a uh, uh, picture above the fold, all that other sort of thing. But page two would have the tiny, typically six-point type with all of the scores, results, standings, all that sort of thing that we probably get today from apps like ESPN.com or Yahoo Sports or something along those lines. And a typical college football show is going to be a lot about the agate page, uh, previews, predictions, the lines on upcoming games, and then reviewing and recapping what actually happened. And that opportunity to dive more deeply, to sail into unfamiliar waters, just isn't there if most of the focus of the show is literally what's next and what just happened. But this year, they introduced this concept called the Twos Cruise, where they metaphorically sail into unfamiliar waters and uh, circle back to docks and ports that they'd avoided because they didn't have time in the regular show and and occasionally drop anchor and dive more deeply into a topic. And this kind of fits in with that. If anything else, the Thanksgiving paper football classic is a bit of an aside because I'm a big fan of uh, small, lower college teams with interesting mascots and and interesting, definitely underreported backstories. And if if only for nautical te- teams, nautical, nautically themed small college teams and their mascots, the uh, the uh, Solid Verbal podcast cut across my wake this year in a really interesting way. And it brought to my mind that at one point in time I did sit down at what turned out to be the beginning of a hiatus of an annual paper football tournament my brother and I have played and perhaps will once again play to uh, kind of talk about that and revisit it, which I did via email, and now I'm doing via podcast. One of the things that I want to say, though, for all these talkbacks, and I'll introduce this again formally next week, uh, too, when I play the the other ones that I intended to start off the talkback series this year with, is that I'm doing this warts and all. This is not my attempt to edit the past. In some ways, I guess I'm a little bit like what the English referees are doing with video assistant referee, their VAR process, where they insist that when they go to replay, they are not re-refereeing the game. They're simply making sure that the official saw what he thought he saw. 
Well, that's what I'm doing here. I'm not, uh, I may be reviewing the show to make sure that it actually has the proper content to be put into the talkback series, but not reviewing the show in terms of saying, well, I need to correct this, fix this, take that out. So a few points of note before we begin. One is that uh, the best way to get involved with this podcast, the best way to reach me, the best way to get the shows is not the Podbean site. I now have inappropriateconversations.org, inappropriateconversations.com redirects. It's been this way for years, but these older shows still refer to the Podbean site as a way to access the website. That's one of the negatives. On the positive side, uh, IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com is still the way to reach me via email. I saw no reason to change. It's been that way from day one. And if I play shows that are a little bit more recent than this first year, I am still on Facebook with a page for both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth as podcasts. And on Twitter, I can be reached as at, at IC underscore Greg. SoundCloud, I'm also IC underscore Greg. And that, that's a place where I've been posting previews, hints, snips, and clips of past shows. I started at the very beginning, been working my way forward. And it's just a way of giving people kind of an audio clue as to what the content of any particular show might be. In addition to that, of course... Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth can be found sharing the same RSS feed on places like Stitcher and Spotify, uh, Apple, all the places that you might get podcasts. I get mine from Dogcatcher, but it's the same idea everywhere you go. There is one disclaimer I would like to make here. In the Different Drummer segment for Keith Jackson, still one of my favorites, one of those guys who was good all the way through to the end of his life, good later when he came back and was uh, reprising appearances, showing up again in the broadcast booth for Rose Bowls, I think typically was kind of the swan song. And he was always good value, so I, I really have no second thoughts whatsoever about Keith Jackson as a different drummer, especially in the realm of sports and athletics, even Olympics. But I did make one, uh, I have a a missed memory in the original recording of the show. One particular OU Nebraska game that I do still hold fondly in my memories from when it was telecast and when I saw it live on TV all those years ago. In my mind, I've replaced the the color commentators with Keith Jackson and Frank Broyles. Not true. I've since the original recording been able to obtain a box set of old Nebraska football games, including this one, which is the reason I bought the box set. I was surprised to find out that, in my mind, the voice of Keith Jackson uh, was just in my mind, not really on the telecast. The truth is, when you hit record on a podcast and just start talking, and do the best you can based on memory, and come back later only to edit places where there was a false start and a stammer, occasionally taking out known errors if you know there are errors, there's probably been a rare episode of either Walk the Earth or Inappropriate Conversations that didn't include some misstatement of some sort, some misremembered facts. It's just the way it is. And so to circle back to the beginning of this intro, I have no intention of cleaning up the mistakes of the past. That's not what this is about. It's about shining a light on what was once done and revealing it for all it was, both good and bad, at the time. It's literally a recollection. It's a talkback. And with that, I'll say once again... Happy Thanksgiving, and here's a Thanksgiving-themed episode of a past Inappropriate Conversations show. Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Thanksgiving paper football classics. (laughs) 
from my perspective, any occasion that brings family together and doesn't involve the picking of old scabs and the opening of old wounds is a wonderful thing. Now, for some families, such an occasion might be a miracle, or at least extremely unlikely, but this truly isn't the problem for mine. A sheet of paper football folded in the shape of a triangle is a part, maybe even a big part, of the reason why. I would love to say that the reason for the delay in inappropriate conversations coming out in late November and now here in early December has a lot to do with playing a Thanksgiving paper football classic, but it wouldn't be true. The annual event, since renamed annual paper football classic, was actually covered during the summertime. But it is every year at Thanksgiving time that I begin to think about some of the traditions that make families unique. And for my family, at least for my brother and me, it is definitely paper football. Perhaps a quick thought on what paper football is, and then I'm going to make a shout out to my friends at the Nerd Hurdles show who are coming near their second year anniversary of podcasting. If you haven't heard uh, the Nerd Hurdles show, you can find it at simplysyndicated.com in the show section under Nerd Hurdles. Their anniversary program should be coming out very soon. Paper football is a game where the uh, American sport of football is imitated, and typically imitated at the elementary school age, to be perfectly frank, by taking an 8.5 by 11 sheet of either notebook paper or typing paper and folding it long ways to where, after being folded a couple of times, it's only an inch or two wide, but the full um, 11 inches long. And then using a technique to fold that into a triangular shape to where when you're done, you have a flat piece of paper that has a little bit of thickness and a little bit of weight to it being almost an entire sheet of paper folded up, but nevertheless in a triangular form. This is then pushed along a tabletop surface where there are specific rules for what happens when you've scored a touchdown and what are the guidelines for kicking extra points and attempting field goals. Now, part of the reason that I wanted to mention my friends at Nerd Hurdles is that I consider this to be perhaps my number one nerddom, the uh, perhaps geekiest thing that I do. Now, uh, at the website, they used to have a, a section in there where you could talk a little bit about the definition of nerdery, and they've got a great blog as well. And one of the things that we were kind of um, batting around when I first caught the show and started communicating with the host of the show was kind of the definitions of what it means to be a nerd or a geek. And um, one of the things was obsession. So in this case, when it comes to paper football, in the interest of true confessions, I've got something that, first off, is typically oriented toward kids. You have a kid activity that is carried forward into adulthood. Now, that could just as easily apply to things like Star Wars and Star Trek, too. In this case, it's paper football. And uh, the other thing is, is how obsessive are you about it? I think before I'm done with this sort of silly program, you'll have a pretty good sense of just exactly how obsessive you can get. My brother and I play a paper football tournament against each other every year, keeping track of who wins, trying to keep track of of how the games are played and the final scores of each one of the best of seven games, always playing seven games in the series, no matter how it plays out. And over the course of 31 years, we've kept track. Now, we've been playing a lot longer than that. We've been playing, frankly, for as long as I can remember. But for about 31 years now, we've got the documentary evidence of, of each score and each result. And although for most of the 31 years we've been playing, I have been the person who's behind in the series trying to catch up with my brother being four plus years older than I am. You can understand how you might not do so well um, with that four year difference coming in elementary and junior high school, the older the older sibling would have a clear advantage. 
But truthfully, he's, he's done well in recent years as well. It's only very recently that I've taken the edge and now have the lead 16 to 15 in this series. Here's what I shared with my friends at Nerd Hurdles uh, in terms of, um, at the time, an obsession that I hadn't shared before. Paper football is where you fold an 8 by 11 piece of paper into a triangle and slide it across a slick table surface, uh, trying to hover the edge of that piece of paper over the edge of your opponent's side of the table to score a touchdown. Extra points and field goals are kicked by flicking the paper triangle through the goalposts that are made on the other side of the table by your opponent's fingers. I would understand someone saying that this is just a game, and maybe as a game and a sports-related game, or at least in name a sports-related game, maybe not that geeky. However, if you get together every year with your brother, traveling many miles, using a special table purchased particularly for the reason of playing this particular paper football tournament, and you play a best-of-seven tournament, you call it the annual paper football classic, or when we were younger, the Thanksgiving paper football classic, um, and you keep track of this over 30 years with scores of the games and the teams that you are representing playing those games, let's just be honest. At, at some point, you've got the kind of obsession that the Nerd Hurdles program is really all about. In fact, in our game, we keep track of seven officially sanctioned kicking styles, the right way to attempt a field goal or an extra point by kicking a paper football. But, you know, as I told them at the time, I probably should stop now, not necessarily stopping while I'm ahead. For some folks, I may be stopping well, well behind. I mentioned a while back that one of the favorite gifts I've ever been given was a gift from my brother. And in this case, it was a gift specifically for the purpose of playing paper football. It was uh, when we first started playing together in our family home, and it was always Thanksgiving because that was the perfect occasion. Um, Mom didn't want you in the kitchen because you were really, truly only going to get in the way in that situation. Your um, dad, your, your other siblings might be busy doing other stuff. And my brother, again, four years older than I, so we didn't necessarily have a lot in common in terms of common interests. He was always going to be a little bit ahead of me. Once I learned how to play paper football, we would retreat either after the Thanksgiving meal or more likely during the the, uh, preparation for the meal into the living room where my parents had a piano and we would pull out the piano bench and play paper football on the piano bench. Now, the table that my brother bought for me when I was, I'm guessing, maybe sixth grade, so he would have been in high school and I would have been in elementary school at the time. That was probably the biggest gap. I mean, it remained four, four and a half years at all times. But the distance from a sixth grader to a sophomore in high school or a fourth former, that's a pretty big distance in terms of still being able to get along or even tolerate each other. We never had that problem. And we also had a great deal of respect for the game. So you didn't see any knockdown drag out fights over whether that was really a touchdown or whether that field goal or extra point should have counted. Truly, uh, for our young age, playing this thing like a gentleman's game. The table that my brother bought for me was a little bit bigger than a piano bench, and that was necessary because the piano bench, if you can conjure up what that looks like, not really wide enough. You need a table that has some width to it, you know, at least at least two feet wide. But the length was about the approximate length of, of a piano bench, which was the, the length we'd always been playing all those years. You take that and you put some furniture polish, like a pledge or maybe even a lemon pledge. Slick that thing up. It becomes a bigger challenge than you might imagine to get a uh, a piece of paper in that particular shape to either spin or glide to the, the edge of the table and not go over. The reason it's important not to go over is the way we play the game anyway. If you're if you knock the football off the end of the table, then uh, an accumulation of what we would call offs 
uh, off OFF, as in the ball has gone off the edge of the table, ultimately leads to field goal attempts. So how do you keep track of something like this over all those years? Seven games a year times 31 years, plus all the games that we played before we decided to start keeping track. How in the world do you keep um, score and a running tally on who's doing what? And one of the things that my brother and I did when we were very, very young, again, even before we started writing down any of these results, was play as particular teams. It's, it's a little bit confusing, a little, a little hard, a little uninteresting, frankly, to try to keep track of the fact that, well, we're in game number four of the series. We'd never do it that way. We ended up going to rival high schools. So by the time I was you know, maybe a year older than when this table was first purchased, I knew that I was going to be um, graduating from a different high school than my brother did. Uh, we moved in his senior year, I think, right before then. And he uh, used an automobile that, that he had to just simply drive across to the other side of town and graduate with his friends. So every year, we play one high school game using some very generous high school rules where it's kind of designed to generate a lot of touchdowns. Uh, you have to have three offs before you attempt a field goal and a lower scoring game. And it was always kind of the two rival high schools against each other. But then we would play four college rules games, uh, two offs to attempt a field goal, a little higher scoring, and two professional games, NFL teams being used there, where any off is a field goal attempt and, and there's a lot of scoring. But we also have a pretty high score limit to determine, well, how do you know when the game's over? And we always did it by saying the game's over when somebody has scored more than a certain amount of points. For high school, it was more than 15. For college, more than 30. And for the uh, professional games, more than 100. Now, 100 points doesn't produce a very realistic professional football score. But it does give a, a pretty good feel for the length of the game at that level. And when you're attempting a field goal attempt, every time the ball leaves the far edges of the table, you can generate points you know, pretty quickly. So what we would do was we would you know, take some time, either collaboratively or individually, picking teams that we wanted to play. So in addition to the high school teams, which were always set, we'd pick four, um, four teams for college and two teams from pros. And a typical lineup, just to kind of give you a sense, I'm going to use the, the last, this last year, the year we were just in. Typical lineup would have, of course, the high school game, something we would call lower college. Now, in lower college, we're talking about in the United States, not what we would call big-time major Division 1A bowl championship college football. Uh, we're either dealing with the smaller Division 1 football programs or even Division 2, 3, NAIA, really small schools. And often or not, as often as not, trying to come up with small schools where we felt like the uh, the team was pretty cool or we liked the city or something going on that made us choose that. We would also go with a bottom 20 college game. Now, this is usually the bigger major conference schools where the schools themselves are just not successful. And when we were in uh, college age, finding out who was in the bottom 20, who were the worst teams in college football, uh, required the chore, if you want to call it that of picking up the September issue of Playboy magazine, because that's where you would find the annual list of the bottom 20 college football teams. This year, we, we didn't have that option. I think we ultimately found the a bottom, a bottom 10 list, I think it was, in Maxim magazine. So you can see a pattern there, I suppose. Then we would have two other college games, one typically involving a conference matchup of sorts and the other uh, involving a top 20 game. You know, who are the best teams in college football? Let's bring a couple of those and each one of us play as if we were that team. 
in the best of years, the pro games tend to go with one AFC matchup and one NFC matchup. And I'll talk a little bit about why we, we segregate the AFC and the NFC in just a little bit. But to give you a sense for how things go, my brother and I came into the, the game this year, which again, we are pretty far apart. I mean, he's in the Pacific time zone. I'm in the Eastern time zone. I don't think we quite meet the bill of being one extreme edge of the United States to another, but it's a trip. It's a journey. And in this case, a journey where somebody's traveling with a table that's, you know, with the legs off of it, not quite as crazy as it sounds, but it's still a table that, you know, occupies a case that's the, the length and width of a, of a piano bench, give or take. We came into this one tied 15 and 15. I'd actually won a couple series in a row just to get back to a 15-15 tie. In our high school game, my brother won 21-14. That's probably not typical. I think if you look at the stats over the years, my high school has done better than his high school. I've played better as a high school player than as a pro player. The lower college game, my brother brought the Minnesota Morris Cougars, and I brought the Trinity of San Antonio Tigers. Uh, my brother won 31-27, to so already you can see some trouble. I'm down 0-2. The next game that we played was the bottom 20 college football game. Sticking with the Minnesota theme for some reason, I brought the Minnesota Golden Gophers. My brother brought the Washington State Cougars, and he won a close one, 32-26, and had a commanding 3-0 lead in the series. The only way I was going to take a lead was to win all four of the remaining games. For the conference game, we went with the Big 12 this year. And part of the reason we did so is because the news was reporting, already had been reporting, that there was two major conference defections going to happen. The Colorado Buffaloes were going to leave the Big 12 and join the Pac-10. And the Nebraska Cornhuskers were going to leave the Big 12 and join the Big 10. I brought Nebraska. My brother brought Colorado. When you think about it from a time zone perspective, that's perfectly fitting. And I won this one 32 to 27. For the top 20 college teams, and this is ironic now considering how poorly the Big East played, we brought two Big East teams that were at the time in the top 20. I brought the Cincinnati Bearcats. My brother brought the Panthers. I won 31 to 6. And now the TPFC was, was kind of back to being a wide open ball game. If I could win both professional games, I'd take it. If my brother could win either one of them, he would take it. For my purposes, I decided to commemorate the upcoming New York City Comic Con that I was going to be going to and, and going to be kind of enjoying the hospitality of the Masters of None, another Simply Syndicated podcast that you can find on the shows tab of www.simplysyndicated.com. Me and a family member went out there to visit the Masters of None. I took the New York Jets as my AFC team and the New York Giants as my NFC team, and it really seemed unlikely that I was going to bring both New York teams and win both pro games, but that was literally what I had facing me. What I had to accomplish was winning those games. My brother brought the Buffalo Bills to play the New York Jets, and he lost that one 103-73, to which really put all the marbles in the NFC game, winner take all. And in this case, I prevailed, taking the lead in the series overall, because the New York Giants won 105-92 to over the Carolina Panthers. That gives you a sense of kind of how this developed. And also a little sense of the, some of the things we think in terms of, hey, if, if Nebraska and Colorado are going to break up the Big 12, we're never going to be able to play a Big 12 conference game again with those two teams. So let's play that. And again, it makes it easier to keep track. At times, it's even influenced the style of play. Because if you know you're bringing a team with a particularly terrible kicker, 
he might try a more adventurous or a less reliable kicking style just to, you know, sort of put a little magic into it. One year, this was when I was in college, my brother was in graduate school, I actually, we decided we wanted the two, the two lower college teams named Augustana to play each other. Now, in the United States of America, these are not schools that you normally think of right away for college football. There was a point in time when the Division Three Augustana Vikings of Illinois were a fairly big name. They'd won a lot of football games playing uh, in the playoff system that is available to teams in that division of college football. But there was also another team from South Dakota called Augustana, and they were also called the Vikings. So we had two Augustana Viking squads lining up against each other. This was in uh, the ninth year of us keeping track. He and I get together, and, and I actually called South Dakota, <clears throat> called the university there, talked to the sports information department because I wanted to know the name of their kicker. Finding out the name of the the uh, Division Three team wasn't hard finding out the name of their kicker because they were winning enough games that you could actually find them in the newspaper. Now, back then, I don't even know what year this was, but back then uh, you were only going to get your sports uh, information from what we would call the agate page of the newspaper. There was no way you were going to get that information from the internet. It didn't exist back then. But if a team won games, scored some touchdowns, were important enough to get themselves in the box score, and in the Midwest, because I lived in the Midwest at the time, a team that it was doing as well as this Division Three school was going to get their they were going to get their story in the paper. So you could always see at least the last name of who was doing the kicking, because the summary section on the scoring would tell you, you know, 83-yard touchdown pass, and then in parentheses it would say who did the kicking. But for Augustana Division Two, which although you know perhaps a quote unquote higher level of football, um, uh, a level of football where you would have maybe a bigger school, better attendance, a bigger budget, they weren't as successful, and they weren't in the paper. So I called them up, and it was one of the strangest stories because I called and I just said, "Well, at the very least, this is just going to be a laugh. It's going to be a lark." I guess would be the word I would use for it. And I got a woman in the sports information you know section. Uh, the sports information department, and I asked her, I said, hey, listen, my brother and I play paper football every year. We try to play as authentically as possible with real college football teams, real pro teams, and we we like to know the names of the kicker. Because if you're playing paper football, the only position player that actually has any role to play is the kicker. You don't really know when you're flicking a ball across the table and, and the ball lands right on the edge. You don't really know, you know who could be responsible for the touchdown, but point afters, field goals, it's pretty easy to identify the kicker. And the lady thought that I was putting her on. You know, she was she was just uh, speechless a bit, and you you might imagine why. But actually, what happened was I happened to be talking to the older sister of the kicker of that particular team's uh, squad that year. And um, so Deb, that was her name. Deb and I had a quick conversation. Once I assured her that I wasn't kidding, she gave me her brother's name, and um, we went on to play that. Now, actually, I didn't play the Division Two team. I brought the Division Three team. So um, I obtained the information from my brother, and uh, he leveraged it quite nicely. The South Dakota team won that game 36-20 to 20 that year, and uh, my brother had a pretty commanding performance, I think, taking, taking the ninth year's annual paper football classic by a 5-2 to two record. It wasn't all fun and games, though. Every now and then we would use this team selection process as a way of, of leveraging some protests, of, of kind of uh, taking out our anger. Whenever the NFL would go on strike, we would replace the NFL. For the first year that that happened, we replaced the NFL with USFL teams. The second year it happened, we replaced them with bottom 20 college teams. Just to sort of say, you know what, we don't need an NFL name to play a game to 100 points. We can pick anybody we want to. Um, and so we've done that before in terms of substituting for the NFL. 
One year during the uh, controversy over the mascot names and insensitivity toward ethnic groups, uh, we reacted a little bit to that one by saying, okay, I can see this thing from all sides. Uh, My brother brought uh, the southeastern Oklahoma State savages, and it was really, in my mind, hard for anyone to justify using an Indian mascot for a team named the Savages. I, on the other hand, brought a team that had said that if, if they weren't going to be able to be called the Indians anymore, a small college from Texas, if they weren't going to be able to call the Indians anymore, then they just weren't going to have a mascot. So I brought, for the first time ever, a uh, team to a, T, to a TPFC that didn't have any mascot, didn't have any team name, because they just dropped it all together in protest. But that year, we also brought the Notre Dame Fighting Irish and the Louisiana Lafayette Ragin' Cajuns as a way of sort of calling out that, you know, there's a lot of stereotyping. There's a lot of potentially racial stereotyping in the game of football and in the, the college football in particular that doesn't have anything to do with Native Americans. And, uh, and so we sort of had some fun with it. I want to read, though, something that I wrote in the year. Well, I'll let you guess the year. The year is probably pretty obvious. As we sort of sent a, an email out to friends and family about the 23rd annual um, Thanksgiving Paper Football Classic and the teams that we had chosen to invite for that particular occasion. So I'm going to pick up this little you know, you know, page and a half, two-page little story, for want of a better word, right after introducing the, the high school match, which, of course, no one needed any introduction for. Everyone in my family knows that high school game and who's playing for which, for which school. Following the high school match, a series of college games focuses on the tragic and historic events of this fall. Lower College will include two teams from Pennsylvania with patriotic mascots. Instead of a bottom 25 game, the focus will shift in the general direction of the Pentagon for a first-ever TPFC between Army and Navy. And finally, New York City teams have been chosen from the Ivy League. This also marks the first time the Ivy League has, has represented a conference game. A search of all college and university mascots found only one school with the Bald Eagle as a mascot. The Lockhaven Bald Eagles will join the William Penn Statesman. My brother had picked William Penn over any of the other available Statesman schools, particularly because William Penn was, you know, the most, um, the closest to New York as far as that goes. Navy will make its first appearance in the TPFC, and it's been years for Army, who will make a first appearance since losing to Coast Guard in year two. Columbia Lions present an interesting story. This will mark their first college football game in the TPFC. It is also the first for Cornell, their opponent. But Columbia has appeared in the TPFC before. In year nine, Columbia played, for for me, for Greg, and lost to Colorado State. And with an NFL strike underway, this was a matchup of bottom 20 games playing under pro rules. Year 9 might have been the last purely patriotic Thanksgiving paper football classic. Celebrating the 200th anniversary of the U.S. Constitution, the Franklin and Marshall diplomats, for Tim, defeated the Washington and Jefferson presidents, for me, for Greg. That game finished 36-7. Back to year 23. Rounding out the college games is a top 20 match that was postponed during the regular season to permit a week of mourning after the violent events of September 11th. Next week, though... The Washington Huskies and the Miami Hurricanes will play on national TV. This weekend, it's paper football. And then I go on to talk about the, uh, the selection of the pro teams and a little bit of the kind of recap of the previous year's, uh, the previous year's matchup. That's the kind of things that we do that, again, if you needed any confirmation that, that this is probably really a nerdy activity, well, there you go. To cover just a few other things about the Thanksgiving Paper Football Classic and just maybe some things that I think are interesting along the way, 
Frank, I mentioned the Franklin and Marshall versus Washington and Jefferson. We always tried to have a little bit of fun with those lower college teams because the you know the major conferences and the the bottom twenty and the top twenty those all tend to be big name schools, but the smaller schools gives you the ability to actually go out and find some teams with interesting mascots. We've had teams like the Emory and Henry Wasps and the Hope College Flying Dutchman, uh, schools like that. And, of course, Lock Haven Bald Eagles fits right in. And at times we've made the choices based, uh, again, like this particular year, I brought both the professional New York teams. And in 2001, we, we tried to find college teams from New York or college teams with a sort of a patriotic or military bent to them. The main purpose is, of course, simply it's easier to keep track of how many games you've played, where you are in the series of seven games, if you can attach names to the series as you go. But it also gives us the ability to do the perhaps ultimately statistically nerdy thing, and that's keep track of the scores. And yes, I actually own the spreadsheet that keeps track of every game that we've ever played since we started keeping track, and um, which player won between my brother and I, but also what was the winning team, what was the losing team, what was the score, what kind of game was it? Was it high school? Was it college? Was it was it pro? Even the location. We've played in some really great locations. Uh, you know, Catalina Island off the coast of Los Angeles. St. Louis, uh, when we were visiting my sister, we played a game in St. Louis. You know, during a, a weekend, we also visited the Arch and, and did, did a little sightseeing. Um, we've had a reason to get together for other occasions, like World Cup qualifying matches between the United States and Mexico, where the weekend also included uh, bringing the table with us and playing the annual paper football classic then. The problem with Thanksgiving is that when you hit a certain age and you have kids, uh, your work responsibilities get much more serious than they were before, it becomes increasingly difficult to leverage Thanksgiving as a holiday. It still is one of my favorite holidays on the calendar. But the problem with it is that you're less likely to get like an entire week around that time. You'll see summer vacations where it's a lot easier to have a more relaxing schedule and, and work in a, a tournament of paper football. And events like Christmas and sometimes New Year's or the week in between, you tend to get a lot of days in a row where you might be able to coordinate your schedule. But you can imagine the difficulty of how, how tricky it is to have two grown men with, you know, with wives, in my case, with, you know, with, with kids too, trying to get together and on a consistent annual basis, find a time and a place where there's at least a day or two to come together and, and play what's essentially viewed as, a, as an elementary school or junior high school kids game. All I can tell you is that it's well worth it because some families only get together for funerals or if they're lucky, the, the occasional wedding. At least for my brother and I, we've found this to be an excellent excuse. If you like food and talking about food, then why not listen to Crimes Against Food with Mia Steele and me, Gloria Lind. You can find us on simplysyndicated.com or download through iTunes. Starting around year seven, we really focused on the idea of dividing the professional games into an AFC matchup and an NFC matchup. And part of the reason that we did that is we decided that if we did it and that worked for us, we could have an exhibition Super Bowl in the years where one of us, when we split the pro games, if one of us won the AFC game, the other one won the NFC game, after you tallied it up and added up the points and said, okay, that, that closes the book on this year, we know who won the series, in a purely exhibition fashion, just play one more game. Just have a little fun with it and kind of see how the Super Bowl piece plays out. And so you don't get one every year because you actually have to play in, play in pro rules where you have the AFC and NFC kind of divided up. And from there, you actually have to come away with a year where you split that pro game. 
despite the fact that over the years my brother has, I think, been the more accomplished player in these longer, very high-scoring games in the uh, realm of the exhibition Super Bowls, I've done quite well for myself, finishing with an 8-3 and three record overall during all the games that have been played, following uh, years uh, 7, 8, 11, 12, 15, 19, 21, tend to be a little bit scattered around. We haven't had one in a couple of years. The most recent one was at a hotel just outside of Disneyland in Anaheim, California, year 29, where the Tennessee Titans scored a 102-96 win over the Carolina Panthers after those teams had uh, split the uh, AFC-NFC games in regular TPFC play. So I think you get a sense of, of kind of, you know, first off, this level of nerdery that I referred to, and second off, the fact that it gives you a another reason besides just, hey, what's going on in our lives? Is there something we want to do from a travel perspective or something that we want to do you know, from a, from a sports perspective or some other reason to get together? And it doesn't let those years slip by. Here in a few weeks, I'm going to talk a little bit about my older sister and um, give you a sense of why I think this sense of the the danger of regret is is so heavy in my in my heart, why I'm aware of it and why I'm sensitive to it, because I know that on my own, I would not um, otherwise be consistent enough to find these reasons to keep together to maintain contact. My wife does a much better job than I do of having regular contact with her siblings and her parents. It's just something that you know it's not baked into me, but one of the things that my brother did, being the older and the wiser of the two of us, especially way back when we first started playing this this game with a piece of paper, I think he had a sense that, yeah, this was a good thing. This was something that if we didn't necessarily agree about what music to listen to, what movies to watch, whatever, we both loved football, pro college and high school. We both loved football. And we were able to turn this not just into a gentleman's game, but also into a family thing. Keeping in line with the concept of football, in this case, college football, I'm going to introduce our different drummer this week with, whoa, Nelly, Keith Jackson, the voice of college football, perhaps for a lot of people, certainly for me, as for as long as I can remember watching uh, football as a kid, Keith Jackson was the voice that stands out. Now, yeah, again, we, we had football fans in my family. One of my earliest memories with my dad was watching during Thanksgiving weekend, and in this case, not the Thursday or the Friday, but probably just Saturday, but it was still Thanksgiving weekend, watching a night game between Georgia and Georgia Tech. And um, it, part of the reason that I still, I think, have something of a fondness for the University of Georgia, and I always cheer for Georgia in that matchup, is that that's who my father, for whatever reason that particular year, who my father was pulling for. We didn't have any rooting interest in, in that university. We didn't live in Georgia. We didn't know any of the players. But uh, it kind of stuck with me. And I'm one of those guys who believes that, yes, you should root for the college football team that, that is your alma mater or the, the school that's close to you, your state's school, what have you. But I've also always had some other team. It's not just been that. I haven't been just a homer in that regard. Um, I cheer, I've cheered for the same teams over many, many years, regardless of which state that I've lived in at the time or which state that I've moved to and from. Stay loyal to my team, whether it be my alma mater or whether it be the other teams, which at the time had just caught my fancy. So I'm not going to get into who I like from college football teams one way or another. 
But I will say that if you gave me the opportunity to watch a classic college football game and everything else was relatively equal, you know, that maybe one of the one of the teams that I like was in multiple games being played and there were several games to pick from, a deciding factor for me would definitely be Keith Jackson. Keith Jackson is an American sportscaster. You might have seen him doing Olympic coverage. Um, doing uh, many, many shows on the wide world of sports where his coverage could have been anything from from winter games during off-Olympic years to boxing. But perhaps, perhaps for most of us, the thing we associate with Keith Jackson more than anything else is college football. Um, the sport that he retired from last was college football, and he's actually been pulled in a few times along the way to do, if nothing else, the Rose Bowl. I'm not sure that I can make the same claims about Keith Jackson, that I made a while back about Mike Emmerich. Uh, I don't know that if you didn't know anything about football or American college football, that you could get the right kind of education about the game just by watching telecasts featuring Keith Jackson. However, there's no question in my mind that Keith Jackson was the voice of college football in all the best sorts of ways. Here's some of the character traits that I enjoyed most. First off, the man was objective. Um, he was not the kind of person who displayed a lot of his biases. I didn't watch his games with a sense that he was cheering for one team over another. He respected the game and did his best to contribute to the integrity of the game in the way he called the play-by-play. He also, though, wasn't afraid to be excited. He understood that being excited and being emotional about an exciting play wasn't necessarily a matter of taking sides. I would describe his style as folksy, homespun, and in that respect, very charming. This is a game that actually has at the time, anyway, had its greatest following in the American South. So when you look at uh, the Southeastern Conference, at the time the Southwestern Conference, the Big 12, you're talking about Southern states. And uh, Keith Jackson didn't do much to try to disguise the fact that he was born in Georgia. And um, although, again, I don't believe that I ever heard him once cheer for any one team, whether they be an ACC team like Georgia Tech or a Southeastern Conference team like Georgia over any other but he wasn't uh, somebody who was trying to disguise himself as being, quote-unquote, any American. He was all-American, but in this case, all-American from the state of Georgia. When I think of college football, I think of Keith Jackson. And, and not to display any bias, if there was one game in all of the years of college football that I watched that I know was broadcast by ABC and that I got a pretty good memory that Keith Jackson was on the broadcast team for— it would be the 1982 very decisive, very important football game late in the year with the Oklahoma Sooners playing at the Nebraska Cornhuskers. This is one of those games that, to my mind, is a classic in every sense, that when you're watching it, if you have this kind of bias, this kind of notion that it's going to come down to the final play, come down to the final gun, that there's going to be incredible controversy built around it, those are the wrong expectations. Those are the kind of ball games you're going to see on, a, on an ESPN classic kind of telecast. This was, in many ways, an ordinary, everyday college football game between two very good teams where the stakes were pretty high and it didn't come down to the final gun. And in this case, Nebraska won, which was unusual at the time for the series. But I simply liked the way he handled that game in terms of the crowd's reaction to winning a home game against Oklahoma for the first time in, in quite a few years, or at least maybe four years. But also the way he handled what you'd consider to be the mundane things that we always expect a play-by-play announcer to do. Which players had the ball? 
What was the play being called? What was the down and distance? What was the score? What was the situation? Um, if you've never heard American college football before and get a chance to pick up a classic game and see that the play-by-play is being handled by Keith Jackson, you're going to be in wonderful hands. And if you think of the different drummer not necessarily being somebody who um, changed the world, fed the poor, um, created an artistic achievement that changed the way we look at things, Maybe sometimes a different drummer is somebody who simply represents fully and completely a point in time that we might feel nostalgic about, but we feel nostalgic about it because it is worth remembering. The nature of inappropriate conversations as a show is that it's going to tend to deal with serious topics. Sometimes it'll look at them from an ironic perspective, but more often than not, it's going to be something that is an issue because we're not taking it as seriously as it should be. We're not looking at it from all the angles that we should look at it from because we tend to try to keep things out of the conversation or off the table. So this one doesn't fit the bill. This was, if nothing else, a piece of holiday-driven nostalgia. But I've got a theory about movies, and it goes something like this. I think that to be a good movie critic, it's really important that you not only watch the best films ever made, but that you also watch the worst films ever made. It's only by seeing things like the sequels to the scary movie, Scary Movie 2 in particular, or... uh, epic movie or disaster movie. It's only by seeing some of those things that you really give the greatest appreciation for the serious art of filmmaking. So if this one was a a little bit silly and by all means, quite a bit nerdy view it as the exception that hopefully the exception that proves the rule. I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com, and I'm open to receiving comments both there and at the website, inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. I'll be back with more regular material in the month of December and more serious material before we see the end of this month. Thanks for listening. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.